Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Ryan Putman joins me to talk about theological method, why Christians disagree about theology and interpretive issues, and how we can move forward in unity even where we might disagree. I love Ryan's work on this. He's written several books on this issue, so hope you enjoy my conversation with Ryan. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation and all of their commentaries and study Bibles and resources for you, your church, and your family. And now, my conversation with Ryan Putman. But first, no big deal. I'm joined by Ryan Putman, my favorite Arkansan. Mississippian, Tennessean, what are you? I, I'm a product of all the Southeastern Conference states. I troll you so much that I just realized as I was uh, thinking about the intro that I actually don't know where you're from because I troll you about seven different Southern states. So where are you actually from? I'm a pastor's kid. I've literally lived across the SEC. So, okay. Um, well, how'd yeah. you end up with Mississippi State? Well, that was that's my birth state. Okay. So you were born in Mississippi and then decided to, instead of jumping on the bandwagon of a good state while you were there, Mississippi State sports is what you decided to go with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the time I'd moved to LSU country, it was too late. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, I want to talk about two books that you had come out recently. We had tried to do this, I don't know, probably a year ago and we're having technical issues and then just never uh, came back around. And so I texted you I last night. where I, I was on your priority list. That's true. But see, so you came through in the clutch because I texted you, what, 10 p.m. last night and was like, hey, you want to do the podcast tomorrow? So I've been waiting by the phone all this time. Well, you did text back pretty quickly and say yes. So I guess it might, might actually be true. All right. Let's talk about you have two books that came out recently. You had When Doctrine Divides the People of God came out at Crossway. And then uh, very recently, you had The Method of Christian Theology from B&H Academic. So I want to talk about both of these because one of the things I appreciate about you, uh, aside from your uh, kindness and godliness and charming good looks and Absolutely. all those other things, I appreciate your disposition toward theology and that you really do focus on unity in theology and theological method. And I think for those two things, uh, they often overlap for you in a way that I think is really helpful. Your theological method informs your theological humility. Uh, and so I love that uh, about you. Uh, so I want to talk about those two things and kind of how they relate. So what I thought we'd do is kind of start with your Crossway book on how doctrine divides us, talk through some reasons why doctrine divides, and then we can kind of move into some theological method type conversation. So uh, if you would, I think one of the really helpful things about your Crossway book is you have this first part about why we disagree about doctrine. And you talk about uh, hermeneutics and the clarity of scripture. You talk about exegesis and theological method. You talk about why we reason differently, our emotions, all that kind of stuff. So maybe give kind of a big overarching picture of those handful of reasons why you think we disagree about theology. Well, I mean, of course, living in this age of social media and everybody having a platform and everybody having a voice to voice their opinions and disagreements, sometimes not in very kind or Christian ways. I became interested in the topic of um, theological disagreement. And really, my first book, my In Defense of Doctrine and my, my dissertation, everything that I'd studied up until this point in time was about theological method and the intersection between theological method and hermeneutics. I uh, was convinced um, and, and still am convinced that 
if more people studied theological method, if more people studied hermeneutics, it would certainly change the disposition with which they deal with their own theological disagreements. Reading about hermeneutics, reading about theological method taught me hermeneutical and theological humility in new ways and not going over to relativism, not going over to denying the truthfulness of scripture, but recognizing even if scripture is, you know, inerrant and truthful in every respect, as evangelicals like myself would affirm, that doesn't mean that as an interpreter of scripture, my interpretation of scripture is automatically the correct interpretation. And um, Brandon, you've experienced this. I know that I've experienced this when you're preparing sermons and you go back and look, you look at your your older sermons and messages kind of thing. Wow, I can't believe I really dealt with the text that way. <laughs> yeah. The same can be said about several of the things that I've said over the years theologically or the, the beliefs that I once held at a particular point in time. Humility is an openness to change those things, not, again, to reject what Scripture said, but to move us closer to what Scripture says on a doctrinal topic. And so that's really what sort of launched me into this inquiry. I wanted to know what it is that brings otherwise like-minded people who share similar convictions about the authority of Scripture, who share similar convictions about its truthfulness, sufficiency, et cetera, and similar convictions about the gospel itself. What is it that brings us to the particular disagreements that we have as evangelicals and what should we do about those disagreements? So, I mean, there are obvious reasons why we would disagree with mainline Protestants. There are obvious reasons why we disagree with our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends who have different approaches to the tradition than we do. But what is it about their in-house debates that makes us distinctive and different in our theological approach? Yeah, so let's read through some of that. I mean, you've got uh, general hermeneutics, right? Like, yeah, on the one right. hand, Scripture is clear, but on the other hand, as you know, many confessions uh, throughout the years have said, it's not clear in the same way in every place. That's right? right. So we have to start there. Says that. Yeah. yeah, so we have to start there. Uh, but then you start moving into the role of our experience, the roles of our um, traditions that we come from, all these different things. Maybe talk through uh, some of those kind of big reasons why you sure. think even intramural debates can be different. sure. Sure. And, and when we talk about something like the clarity of Scripture, I think it's one of those really misunderstood principles of the Reformation. Um, when Luther and Erasmus are going at it about the clarity of Scripture, and they're doing that in the context of the, of the free will, um, bondage the will debate, Luther's not saying that all of Scripture is easy to understand. What he's saying is that all of Scripture is intelligible and that God is not purposefully being ambiguous or hiding himself in the text or distorting the meaning of the text where we cannot understand it. So scripture is something that can be understood. It's intelligible, I'm talking about the external clarity of scripture. There's also the internal clarity of scripture that comes with the illuminating activity of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, evangelicals need to understand, first and foremost, when we talk about the clarity of Scripture, we're not saying out the gate that it's automatically intuited as we read it and understand it. And I think that's where the contribution of general hermeneutics lies. We understand where we are as interpreters in a time and place in history that we are shaped 
by that time and place in history. We have limited intellects. We, we have limited access to some of the historical resources. So there's going to be some reasons at the very level of general hermeneutics, how we read all text that are going to apply in Scripture. And then to go from there, I mean, I think the obvious thing that we often talk about are differences at the level of exegesis. We exegete passages differently. We use the tools of exegesis differently, whether that's at the level, the low level of textual criticism, or it's in the higher levels of literary criticism and, uh, and you know, the historical study of the text. I mean, we are going to differ on the exegetical level. But what I think was probably the most unique contribution of, of my volume to this point is um, the discussion of the ways in which our different reasoning processes and the ways in which emotion and even confirmation bias play a factor in uh, theological formation and in the disagreements that we have. When I talk about reasoning process, oftentimes people automatically think about deduction, deductive reasoning, and uh, deductive reasoning um, moves from uh, moves from a general principle to, to more specific applications. Inductive reasoning moves from the specific towards the more general, and you will often hear about things like inductive Bible study, and I think there's a place for that, but um, I'm borrowing heavily from the work of C.S. Peirce, who is a, a late 19th, early 20th century um, philosopher who helped us understand a place for abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning being how we come to the particular hypotheses that we're making. And now, of course, his context, he's talking about the natural sciences. But you can see this in criminology. Abductive reasoning plays a big role in in how we come to theories and how we come to guesses about what happened. And I argue the same is true for the biblical text. For instance, when you're dealing with a passage like 1 Timothy 3, which talks about the, the qualifications for the elder pastor, the qualifications for the deacon, that's one of a, uh, of a number of just a few commonly cited texts throughout the New Testament when people are trying to form their understanding of New Testament ecclesiology. But when we read the New Testament, there is no explicit instruction for how New Testament government or, or the church's government in the New Testament is laid out. I mean, we don't have any church planning manuals. We don't have any guides for how to, to, how, how to run a church business meeting um, or how we do polity. What we are reading is we're reading other people's mail. We're reading Paul's letters and the, and the Catholic epistles, other people's letters to the churches, to specific situations that are going on in the churches. And what we're trying to do is do a lot of inference, um, trying, to, trying to make sense of, well, how did they rule the church? How did they govern the church? And it's sort of like um, trying to put together the puzzle without the box top with the picture. And mm -hmm. we're not even sure that we have all the pieces. So abductive reasoning is the way that we make good educated guesses um, about what was going on in that ancient setting, in that ancient context. Give another example, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's discussion about the gift of tongues. 
Paul is obviously writing to Corinth for their abuse of the gift of tongues, but we don't have a direct explanation from Paul about what the gift of tongues is. Hence, there is going to be theological disagreement between different theological traditions as we try to fill in those gaps creatively as we reason our way to explaining the way those texts relate to one another. Yeah, I do like to believe that Paul was adamantly against church business meetings. I want to say yeah, that that's probably so. Probably I mean, it's, so. it's probably absent because it never happened, right? That's what we're that's what we're hoping for. Or, or Robert's rules of order, an analytical tool that we can use <laughs> alongside scripture or scripture uh, sufficient without Robert's rules. Well, apparent, apparent it depends on what context you're in, right? Um, so when you talk about, and that's really helpful, when you talk about this confirmation bias, this reasoning, that's where theological humility has to come in, right? To say, we have to recognize, and I try to tell my students this too, we have to recognize that good, faithful Christians who love the Bible come to different conclusions on this. And when we're talking about ecclesiology, like you said, um, you know, there are all these different debates about what is the, the hierarchy of the church bishops versus pastors or pastors and bishops and elders are the same thing. Uh, what constitutes authoritative teaching? What constitutes being under the authority of the leaders? I mean, yeah, you, there's no manual for that, right? So you're doing right. the best you can in the context that you're in uh, to read scripture well and try to make sense of that. So one of the things that you bring out there is that that side of it, right? Then there's the other side you kind of trans transition into. Uh, when should we change our minds? That's the, the, the title of chapter six. So Walk us through that a little bit too, because a lot of people will say, well, you're just being loosey goosey, you're open minded, like, you know, you come across the right Bible passage, and all of a sudden, you're going to flip your entire ecclesiology or something like that, right? So how do we, how do we hold on to the things we think are true, while also being willing at any point to change our minds, if we think that that's the right thing to do, the biblical thing to do? Well, I begin that chapter, noting that there are good examples throughout history of people who have changed their minds. Um, Augustine, one of the last things that he wrote was his retractions. Right. And uh, I mean, maybe it, I don't know that I'm ever going to be significant enough to do that, but maybe at the end of my life, I'll sit down and think, oh, I would have done this differently. I think differently on this subject now. And, and that's just part of the process of learning and growing. You can't just assume that you know everything the first time you hear or study a subject matter. And I think that's just a that, that lines up with what the Proverbs teach us about, about being teachable mm -hmm. and, uh, and what the New Testament consistently teaches about being teachable. So that, that seems like a good practice. When I talk about when should we change our minds, I lean heavily into kind of a, a newer field or subfield in philosophy called the epistemology of disagreement. And uh, the epistemology of disagreement, there are a lot of debates about how people who are called epistemic peers should relate to one another. Uh, that is people who have spent um, the equal amount of time studying the same subject, people who are, who are equally intelligent. If they get into a disagreement with one another, should they change their position? Should they take a, take a more passive approach and say, well, we're just, we're just gonna agree to disagree or do we do, we do something differently? If you and I were to get into a debate about Trinitarian language in the book of Revelation, you would not. Yeah, you would I, lose. Yeah, I would lose because <laughs> I clearly I can identify myself as an epistemic inferior, knowing that I have not spent a significant amount of time studying that body of literature, 
you know, it, it would be one of those things. And that's what epistemology of disagreement does is it helps me recognize who really has spent more time, who's put more effort into this, who who has a, a better epistemic standing point um, than than I do on a subject matter. And, and, you know, we could flip that on something obscure like Mississippi State Athletics or something like that. <laughs> but uh, so so part of epistemology of disagreement is just recognizing when you're not in the, in the place of knowing better than someone else. I agree uh, with that, you know, kind of foundationally, but of course there are people who are more well-learned than you are that are still wrong. Right. Yeah. And so you got to work through that idea of, okay, they know more than me, but I'm not just going to take everything they say at face value, but you'd say there's at least a humility to say, if I'm going to challenge them, I better, I better be at their level of scholarship or find somebody who disagrees with them at their level of scholarship, rather than thinking I'm the person to do that. Sure, sure. And I, of course, the example that I would I would give someone like that is Bart Ehrman. You know, uh, here's a here's an extremely intelligent, gifted, well-studied New Testament scholar who disagrees with me on just about everything. You know, but that doesn't mean necessarily I'm going to call him my epistemic superior <laughs> just because he has the Princeton Ph.D. and he has X number of years teaching and, and writing so many books or that sort of thing. In that particular case, I would say that there are other things that disqualify him from being an epistemic superior, namely that he lacks the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. We can bring into our discussion of epistemology of disagreement some other things that the people who are dealing with this purely in a philosophical level can't. I think epistemic virtue, the sort of stuff that Jay Wood talks about in his epistemology textbook, humility, godliness. We can look at we can look at spiritual characteristics as well. What is the fruit of of our point of view or over against someone else's uh, point of view? It's not limited simply to intellectual categories. Right. Yeah, so let's let's we were just talking uh, right before this, we we're recording this on the tail end of the Southern Baptist Convention. And this, this isn't just a direct SBC question, because I think it's broader than the SBC. But as you're sitting back looking at disagreements in the church, you know, looking at the Southern Baptist Convention, right, where you have this split basically between two pretty clear different factions of the SBC, who sort of are unified around the Baptist faith and message or are supposed to be, and yet have these wildly different views of interpretation how uh, the Bible is applied to culture, applied to the church. But this happens in Presbyterian circles and all over the place. So as you sure. sit back and look at that, what are some kind of foundational things you think that are going wrong there that are causing this very clear uh, divide between people who should be agreeing on all of the things that, that we would consider the most important? I think a significant part of the problem is we're like ships passing in the night because we're not having an opportunity for clear dialogue with one another. Shouting matches on Twitter don't constitute genuine dialogue mm -hmm. and um and 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 in order to have genuine dialogue we have to genuinely understand each other's positions james leo garrett famously said you're not really even, even in a place to debate someone until you can so clearly state their position that they will say oh yeah that's exactly what i think that's mm -hmm. exactly what i believe and uh Right now, of course, in the SBC, there's, I think, a significant misunderstanding and, and debate about the so-called sufficiency of Scripture. For me, I want to take my 
definition of the sufficiency of scripture from the Reformation tradition, from the historic resources of the tradition. But, but what I'm saying is sort of a naive biblicism coming out of a lot of people's mouths where they don't, they really don't understand what we mean to say that scripture is sufficient. We say that scripture is the supreme source of knowledge about God and his world. It's not to say that we can't learn from other sources, um, but scripture is the only measuring rod against which those other sources are tested. I think some people have this sort of understanding of the sufficiency of scripture. I think a, an uninformed position on the sufficiency of scripture, that it means the only thing we can know about the world is from the Bible, at least in practice, that was what it seems like. Yeah. And, that, and again, I think that happens, you know, you, you talked about virtue as well. There's probably uh, pride and, you know, those kind of things that go into it as well. So then you do talk about though, uh, when should doctrine divide us, which is a helpful thing to think through, right? Because when you talk about unity, you talk about ecumenism, you talk about Catholicity, whatever word, you know, you want to use, there is a default sometimes to thinking, well, unity means we all have to agree on everything, which I would say is not the same thing, right? That's uniformity. That's, that's, we're right. all lemmings right. that are all jumping off the cliff together. When should we divide though, right? Because we have to do that. We have to divide at some level because what makes us a Baptist versus a Presbyterian that divides us, whether you have some intramural debates within Baptists about certain things that divides us divides, not always bad, but it can be, right. right? So how do you think through division? When should we divide and when is it healthy and not healthy? Well, I mean, I think the gospel is what divides us from the non-believing world. And I want to be careful to parse out the difference between the gospel as New Testament authors so clearly stated, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and the, the other things that we, we sort of attach to the gospel, like uh, your interpretation of, of the mechanism of the Ordo Salutis, for instance, is not the gospel. All these other doctrines throughout the New Testament, which we believe buttress or support the gospel, are not the gospel. These things that we think are the implications of the gospel are not the gospel. What is it that we proclaim is the essential message that a person needs to believe in order to have saving faith in Jesus? And, uh, and, and, and certainly that's one clear dividing line. I mean, we need to be uh, divided from people who will reject the deity of Jesus, for instance, the resurrection of Jesus. We need to be divided from people who would deny the Trinity when it's presented to them in a biblical fashion. There's a good and healthy place. And the, the classical creeds really are good first tier dividing lines for us. Mm -hmm. You can attach to that things that in scripture that are very, very clear should be dividing lines and things that are less clear or things that we have more of a tendency to disagree about in scripture are not as crucial or important for, for marking off our, our boundaries. But when it comes to things like ecclesiology, you can't have convictions about what Scripture teaches and practice those conviction, convictions without some sort of separation. My pedo-baptist friends, I love them, and you know, I, I I I try to make sense and understand their position. I just can't I just can't go there. So I can be a co-laborer in the kingdom with them. We can get together on larger projects. But if I have convictions about the importance of credo baptism, 
ecclesiologically, I'm going to find myself in a group of like-minded believers. And that's just a natural thing that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Cause I, I think through this a lot, you know, there is the sense in which we have different denominations, for example, partially because of sin, lack of knowledge, uh, limitation, yeah. perhaps yeah. You, you could right. at least make that argument on the same token. We want to say that all these different denominations are gifts of God to each other, to hold each other accountable, to encourage yeah. each other, to sharpen each other. So how do you think through, uh, you know, this kind of the divide that we live in right now, the good and the bad of it? Because I, I think through that a lot and don't really know that I have a real clear articulation other than saying there's good and bad to it, I guess. Well, you know what the KJV says about this, or Kevin J. Van Hooser says about this, <laughs> uh, that, uh, that the world would be worse off if we didn't have our different denominations and theological traditions, because it's in diversity that we that we really get closer to the truth because we're exposed to so many different perspectives. And um, and so diversity, theological diversity is a good and beautiful thing. And, you know, Van Hooser goes on to say that uh, the world would be far worse off if, if everybody thought like Van Hooser. I don't think that's necessarily true, but <laughs> I certainly think the world would be far worse off if everybody thought like Putman. Um, so. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's good. And that's where, you know, whatever it, I mean, I have students ask me this, you know, like, well, when we get to the eschaton, the new creation, like, are we all going to agree on everything? I'm like, well, probably, but I mean, there may still be some sort of disagreements that are not divisive. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, I'm assuming God's going to say Baptists are right and everybody else is wrong. Yes, everybody I'm looking a Baptist. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that eschatological affirmation. <laughs> but at the same token, there is sort of the idea that even in the New Testament, as the Jews and Gentiles came together, they were allowed to have some theological disagreement right. about what they ate and, you know, how they associated with the law and different things like that. I mean, that's, that's some pretty important theological differences. And yet they were always called to unity, you know, in Christ yeah. and in, in their willingness to love each other. Unity is sometimes not thought, but just the fact that you're willing to love each other. And, and that's important to know when, when Paul talks about being of one mind in Romans 15, it's following the discussion about food in Romans 14. And there were clear differences and disagreements between Jewish gentile audiences but they were called together not out of uniformity of thought but of unity of purpose unity of mission mm -hmm. unity in jesus okay so let's move into your uh, method for theology particularly i think i want to talk about the procedures that you kind of lay out because you say you know as you're reading scripture you've got uh different things that can help you you know, kind of understand scripture better. You've got tradition, you've got philosophy, and you've got experience. That's kind of the three, the three big ones that you bring out there uh, with scripture, obviously, as sort of the, the ultimate authority and the, the grounding for that. So once you just talk through those three things, how does tradition play a role? You know, what are some good and bad there? Uh, philosophy and experience, and take as long as you want, just kind of walk through those three tiers there, because I think that'll help us think through a little bit of how to do good theological method that is both biblical and yet informed by the best resources we can get. It's very beneficial to lean into the wisdom of those who have gone before us, who spent their lifetimes studying and thinking through, you know, the various uh, doctrinal questions and and issues that they faced. And, you know, that history repeats itself. There's nothing really new under the sun. Mm -hmm. A lot of the challenges that we face today um, as believers generations past faced the same sort of challenges and difficulties. And we can learn 
a lot from the wisdom of those who've gone before us. Because as, as I learned from Bart, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are part of the church universal. And even though they're dead, they demand uh, a hearing from us as living voices. And, um, and, and, and so tradition has to be a, a key part of what we do. And, you know, we could talk about different ways that you study tradition in, in the process of doing systematic theology, whether you're tracing one doctrine throughout history or you're trying to understand its development in a particular historical context. And then again, I think the thing that, that you and I are probably pretty interested in right now is theology of retrieval, seeing ways in which historical theology can inform our present situation. Mm-hmm. And in terms of reason, uh, there's there's probably room for a lot of Christian disagreement as to how reason is appropriated, but that's a, a big part of what the SBC debate has been about, about the role of uh, the role of, of common grace or general revelation. Is there, is there truth about the world that we can learn from these, from these, these other sources that aren't derived from scripture? So there's, there's a place for that. Of course, there's a place I think for the newer kind of analytic theology, which takes the tools of philosophy and philosophy of language and analyzes special revelation in a, in a new way um, in the traditional Christian doctrines like the Trinity, which you can't glean from general revelation, but you can certainly use the tools of philosophy to help analyze and make more sense of. And, uh, and then, of course, experience. Um, we, we must be careful about about beginning and ending with experience, but but certainly theology can be informed by experience because experience um, can confirm um, a lot of what we know from from scripture and tradition and reason to be true. Mm-hmm. It can also help us give get some categories and questions that we bring to the theological task, and uh, and so it certainly plays a vital role in what we do there. But at the end of the day. I am convinced that theology is not just about shaping minds. It's about shaping our hearts and our affections and our experience. Mm-hmm. So those things always have to be in conversation with one another. Yeah. And that was, that was what I wanted to kind of conclude here on you conclude the book, the book so well, talking about preaching doctrinal sermons about theology's role and disciple making and these kind of things. And that's something both of you and I care about. So we both work at universities with, you know, college students. And so we both, uh, want to be involved in doing this. This is part of kind of how we how we live and breathe as theologians. So what would be a couple of tips you would give to professors, pastors, uh, maybe seminarians who are coming up wanting to be pastors or professors? How does theology shape sort of how we teach, uh, how we disciple? Why is it important? I think we all know why it's important, but maybe really talk through just some processes and practical ways that it can play itself out. I just think what I would say is try to bring into balance the cognitive the, the practical and the affective or emotional. We, we should aim for holistic disciple making. Oftentimes we neglect one or, or the other. And we, so sometimes in theology, we can, we can be too focused on the cognitive. Sometimes in areas like Christian education and discipleship, we can neglect theology. We can neglect the focus on truth and trying to bring those things into balance. Again, so we have students that are biblically literate, that are theologically literate, that they're capable of responding to the 
the the, the challenges that they're going to face in the culture and in the church to have that practical uh, dimension to be able to lead and to be gifted in these areas and also to practice Christian ethics. Um, but at the end of the day, again, to have affections and love for the Lord uh, in the process as well. So I, I would encourage professors to, to try to always keep in mind the holistic disciple. Mm-hmm. And um, that's part of what we do. All right, let's finish up here. You're a Saints fan. You're losing the great Drew Brees. Uh, I mean, great. He was great four years ago. I mean, last year, I probably could have thrown a deep ball better than him. But um, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I don't think I can actually grip an NFL football, to be fair. So um, what, what, are your, what are your hopes and dreams and predictions for the future of New Orleans Saints football with Jameis Winston and uh, the great Mormon hope, Taysom Hill? I'm, I'm pretty bummed about it. I, I really would have given Taysom Hill the top billing. So it'd be interesting to see if they put, they put Jameis in that number one seed or not. I think Taysom is, is certainly the, the more gifted and unique athlete on our team. The, you're one of the ones that's on the Taysom bandwagon, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you think you think anybody else would give him that big of a contract though? That's the question, right? I mean, is he just no? Like, well, that that was that was filler. I mean, that was I don't I would not have started him on that kind of contract. <laughs> that, that's oh. trying to give him something while we wait on our our, our number one draft pick, <laughs> which you will probably be doing uh, drafting sooner than later. Yeah, we'll find out. Well, as as much as we troll each other about the Cowboys and Saints, um, you do love Dak Prescott because I do love a, Dak Prescott. He's yeah. a Mississippi State guy, so you got to love him. Hill State. Um, so I'm just saying, when the Saints are clearly in the gutter, like they're going to be, you can jump on the 500 bandwagon of the Cowboys. We're always going to have at least you know seven or eight wins. So you just come hey, over to our we side. We will take Dak, and we will appreciate him, unlike you Romo fans. Fair point. That's a fair point. All right, Ryan. Thanks so much for doing Our this. Brother. Appreciate it, man.